But how are you doing today? Doing good. Happy Tuesday. Yeah, happy t- yeah. Giving <laughs> Giving Tuesday. Yeah. And you're right now. You're in Houston, correct? I am. Although you know, throughout the year, I could be found in one of probably ten or fifteen different countries. So. I'm uh, on the typical year. I might be gone twenty or twenty-five weeks out of the year. So wow. So yeah. So the pandemic has been good in some ways, and that I got to sit down for a minute, and then bad yeah. in other ways. But things right. are picked back up. Pick, things are picking back up. Yeah. It's always fun to look at your Instagram and see what you're posting and where you are, and it's just all the. I mean, just <laughs> even just the pictures of the safaris and the the tents and the whole setup. It's amazing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how I use my Instagram account. And thanks for, for, for that praise. But um, I always try to tell a story of like, what are we seeing as opposed to, or, you know, what are we doing? What are we seeing? What are the, mm-hmm. how, how to paint a picture of what a safari is like? Because if I just posted photographs of wildlife all the time, that doesn't really explain, you know, what are your rooms like? What do you do when you're not watching wildlife? You know, a safari isn't just sitting in a Land Rover looking for wildlife. It's sitting right. underneath a tree at 10 o'clock in the morning after you've seen wildlife and having a cup of coffee and just kind of relaxing, you know? Or at sundown, yeah. raising a glass of gin and tonic to to, to <laughs> celebrate the day. Yeah, it's yeah. good. Yeah. Well, it's something that I appreciate because I think that a big problem on sometimes on social media is you never see the real life and the behind the scenes. Yeah. And it's, it's nice to actually see what really goes on and stuff that's happening maybe like behind the camera. Yeah. You know, you know, the safari industry, we'll call it that. Um, the safari industry wouldn't be what it is without all the people and the staff at the, at the camps and all the people that make it happen. And they really need to be, celebrated more <laughs> for sure yeah you know the, all the guides all the waiters the staff the the housekeeping you name it there's an army of people th- that are there to help and without their help you know this i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to do this right yeah and uh I, and if it weren't for you i probably wouldn't be a photographer now because my dad introduced me to you and you were the first wildlife photographer i ever saw any pictures from <laughs> and we looked all through your website, just blown away. And it really was a big stepping stone for me and was really inspiring. And it's probably one of the biggest reasons I am where I am today with photography. Wow. Um, so I have to say thank you for that, by the way. No, thank you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, there were people before me that inspired me to do it and gave me the um, belief that I could do it. You know, I used to have a career in and implementing financial software systems. I mean, talk about uninspiring hmm. and boring, right? <laughs> and then about and then 20 years ago, I went on safari for six weeks. I took a basically a, a leave of absence from my career, uh, moved from California back to Texas, and just said, hey, let's go on safari. <clears throat> and we went on safari. We climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, sat on the beaches oh. of Zanzibar, and just really enjoyed the process. And through that six weeks um it was like a like a, a slowly forgetting about my previous corporate life and starting to think about life in a different way and through that process i wrote a business plan to start guiding safaris for people with cameras and that kind of turned me into really mostly well safari industry as like 
a tour operator, if you want to call it that. And I use that to put me in places to take photographs that bring me a lot of joy. And then I share them, share the photographs, but I don't really expect any income from it because it, it just helps me sell safaris. So it's all kind of feeds oh, on itself. And then, and that's then, so interesting. Yeah, and then that was 2002. And within a few years, um, I was the... Uh, I was the artist in residence for Banana Republic clothing stores. So you could go into any store around the world. I think at that time they had like 700 or 750. And I've my, seen your work in one before. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. yeah, and then uh, you could see, uh, well, basically that kind of helped me build my safari business more. Um, and the, the irony in that, in that deal that I did with them was that I was the number two person. Uh, because the first person was too expensive. And the first person was Peter Beard, oh. who was somebody who inspired me to take African, uh, I don't say wildlife photos, but just basically be creative on the continent of Africa. And he was too expensive. So they went to number two, and I gladly w <laughs> took that job yeah. as, as, the, as the backup. That's fine, you know. <laughs> so were you taking a lot of pictures before you went on that first safari tour or was the safari tour happen and then you started taking pictures? Good question. Um, I picked up a camera about a year and a half earlier. I oh, Okay, so fairly new to the game. Yeah, I didn't really know much about photography. Um, I picked up a camera and I bought a camera in December of 2000 and I just went, hey, wait a minute, let's go out on, let's go camping every weekend and just go take some landscape yeah. photos. We were living in Northern California at the time. And so I had Yosemite. I had Carmel, yeah. Big Sur. I mean, I had all this beautiful landscape nearby. And I just kind of ran with it. I mean, I ran with it. And by the time we went on safari in June of twenty or 2002, a year and a half later, I felt very comfortable and confident with, with you know, the picture-making process, if you wanted to call it that. I mean, right. understanding yeah. f-stops and all of that. And I yeah. took a digital camera on that safari as opposed to taking a film camera. That was right at the beginning of when digital SLRs were coming out. Right. And there was, and there was only one on the market. <laughs> and it was a Canon D30. It was three, oh yeah, it was three megapixels. It had, <laughs> it had three horrendous autofocus points. It was yeah. really an atrocious camera. But it was three grand too, and I took that. Oh my gosh! I took that, and the biggest memory card I had, I think, at that time, the biggest one I had was either two hundred and fifty-six megabytes or five hundred. I can't remember. It wasn't a lot. <laughs> yeah, megabytes. Yeah, and a raw that file. That is crazy to think about. Yeah, and a raw file at that time was it was around two megabytes wasn't very big so i could i oh could i could take a hundred and something photographs on a card and yeah yeah and i just took a little image storage device with a hard drive and i downloaded every day used a solar panel device to charge up my my battery so it's was, it was all fun yeah that is so cool to to be to really start in that moment of transition from film to digital yeah you know but that is that's also how i was able to build a business because there was a lot of anxiety and excitement at the same time around people taking photographs on you know with a digital camera. 
They yeah. maybe they had never been into photography before, and they just didn't really understand like what a camera does and can do. Or right. people were conversant in film and didn't know how to move to digital. And so I was there to teach and help. And so that I really built my business around that. And then that I would say that kind of market matured 10 years later. By 2012, most of my travelers that I was guiding, they knew enough about their, their camera systems. So it became yeah. less about uh, the mechanics of digital photography and downloading and processing their photos. And it became more of a mechanics of, well, Andy, just take me there and get me there and then teach me field craft, how to take a photograph out in the field. How are you composing? Right. You know, throw out some ideas. So I became, I think, more of a coach in that regards. And well, that's then, interesting. Yeah, and then, and then over time, I, I don't say I've done less and less of that, but people have asked more and more of me um, regarding just you know finding the wildlife, traditional guide African wildlife guide type thing. So I've kind of morphed over the years and yeah. I'm taking, makes it interesting though, like to change it up over the years. Well, yeah. I mean, if you pay attention to nature, you'll realize that you know nothing because it's just, it's a, <laughs> it's a life of learning about yeah. all the trees, the plants, the animals, um, whether they're mammals or birds or invertebrates, whatever you just, you always have to be asking yourself like, what is that? And why does it do that? And then you go look for answers. You know, we're given guidebooks, yeah. and then you read them, and you do a guide course, and you learn a base knowledge. But that's certainly not—it's not everything. It's not everything. Yeah. You're, you're, there's always more to learn. You know, you could learn about everything on safari regarding all the mammals, and then you realize that you start looking at the ground, and you, you realize that you can identify ten different species of grass around you. Why do we have ten different species of grass? Or maybe you figure out all the plants at some point, and then you look to the skies at night when you're having a beer around the campfire, and you go, huh, I guess I should learn more about the southern hemisphere stars in the sky during the winter. Mm. Right? Yeah. And then next thing you know, you're in the constellation world. There's always yeah. more to learn. There's always more that, to learn. Yeah, that is the beauty of this life, is there is just endless possibilities of knowledge. Um, one thing I was wondering, if you had gone somewhere else for your first big photo or your first big trip do you think you would have done more photo work in that landscape no. like if you no. oh really <laughs> no no and it's because um i've never been anywhere else that inspired me as much as being on safari okay yeah i just feel like it's a natural um have you here's a question for you have you ever have you ever been somewhere or you're doing something where you have absolute clarity and confidence that that is what you're designed to do or you're there for a purpose i've had it happen to me in two places yeah the the first one <clears throat> was when i was on a trip with my family recently in wyoming and montana and we were doing this big 15 mile hike and i was ahead of them and i just got so excited i was like running up these switchbacks there were wild sheep next to me huge open views and i was taking pictures of everything that was definitely one of those moments where i knew that this is what i need to be doing yeah and then the other time is whenever i'm doing work with beneath the waves the it's a shark conservation group like i was just down in the bahamas with them for a week and then i'm going to go back 
next week to shoot photo and video with them. Um, and when I'm in the water swimming with tiger sharks and getting everything, <laughs> that that's what that's when I know. Yeah, I mean, it, but you know that that confidence or that knowledge is very um, it's very comforting to be able to mm-hmm. be somewhere and you're doing something like not only physically be somewhere doing that, but like my career for 20 years, I, I've, I've run photographic safaris and I know that this is what I'm on the earth to do. I know it and I'm good at it. I love it. I'm able to earn an income doing it. So it's like the convergence of three things all at once kind of makes life less complicated. You know, I think most people in their careers are at best doing two of those three things. So let's review again. So it's yeah, being good at something, enjoying it, and being able to earn a living at it. I think at best most people have two. And often yeah. people have zero or one, which is I'm okay at it. I'm not really doing well financially and you know, I don't enjoy it. Well, that kind of sucks, right? I mean, that's that's, yeah. pre- that's pretty horrible. I had a former career in software, and I was pretty darn good at it, but I didn't enjoy it, and I was earning a decent living at it. So I had two out of the three. That's good, I guess. Yeah. But I think that kind of describes most people, or that they enjoy something, and they're good at it, but they're not able to earn a living doing it. And right. I think that is often the case for someone who's doing something creative, right? It's tough. Definitely. As a, as a, <laughs> yeah, it's as tough as a creative, a creative person, whether you're like an illustrator, a photographer, an artist, or whatever. It's often really, really hard to get that income side figured out. And so my angle on this has really been that I don't really get compensated for my output as a photographer. I just photograph for me, and if people like it, great. And if they don't, I'm not offended at all. Um, but I just use the photographs to help market my services, which is planning safaris for people and or guiding them as well. So Yeah, I, I love that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, more than half my of my business is planning safaris for people, and I don't go with them. I stay at home. So... I was wondering yeah. about that because I, I've, lo- I've looked on your Safari website and some of them have you listed as the guide and then some have others listed as the guide and uh, that's interesting. Yeah, but also, but those are, I would call those like open enrollment safaris where you go to the website and you say, oh, I could go on Safari, you know, June of 2022 and oh, Andy's going to Kenya or PJ's going to Kenya or Jane is going somewhere, whatever. But uh it's really that people contact me and say, hey, can you plan a custom safari for me and my family? Oh. So that's really a big, 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 big chunk of my business. And um, in a lot of ways, that's freeing in that I don't have to be gone as much. Uh, but also at the same time, it does, it does, it does kind of hit you from an ego standpoint because now you're not the person on the ground delivering that safari and honestly, that's that's very it's a very addictive uh, thing to to be a part of. Like you're delivering smiles every day. People are happy. Mm-hmm. They're having an amazing time, and you're hosting them and teaching them about wildlife, how to photograph them. And if you're not there, you're like, wait a minute, what's my value? Uh, <laughs> like how, how do? I, yes, I'm earning a living and I'm planning safaris, but I'm not there. I should be there. That's that's right. that's kind of difficult to back away from. 
It is. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So will you, or do you have a lot that you'll be going on in the next year? Oh yeah. yeah. The next couple of years are backlogged because of COVID. You know, the 2020 safaris, um, mostly, well, all of them got postponed to 2021, Mm -hmm. but most of them still got postponed to 2022. Only, Only a few of them ran. Um, so yeah, so the next couple of years are going to be really busy. Um, and that's good. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Busy, busy is good. One thing, um, that really drew me to your photography is your strong use of black and white. And I love black and white photography for one. I think it's just, I think it's great when you can create such an impactful image without the use of all the colors, but also Mm -hmm. because I'm colorblind. So I really appreciate black and white photography because I have trouble editing sometimes and a black and white photo makes it a lot easier. Well, you know, it's, what's interesting about the whole color versus black and white, you know, debate, not debate, but just the discussion around it is that, is that, um, I like to explain it this way in color photography. And when, when you're taking color images and you're showing them to people, they're looking through this lens, I hate to use the pun, but they're looking through this lens of uh, believability. They want to believe that that color of the sky or those grass colors are what they were originally, that I captured them and faithfully am presenting them in the photograph. And so that there's a box, and the box is the box of believability. It makes this box kind of fairly small because you have to live inside it. You have to live inside that. And with black and white, that box gets really big because people are not judging your image through what's believable and what's not believable anymore. They're they're able to get past that. Now they're just looking at shapes. And in black and white photography, you have to be more dependent on shapes and texture because you don't have color. You just don't have it. So now the relationship between objects are more even more important. And if you think about photography is like, or a photograph as being a stage, you know, you've got actors and actresses on the stage and they all have different roles and their, their, their relationship with each other is, uh, it's assumed because they're in the image. You put them in there. So now there's this assumed relationship between them and that, that could be filled with tension it could be all harmonious. It's whatever you want it to be, but you're now heavily dependent on shape, texture, um, contrast between white and black. We will call that luminance-based contrast because you have no color. And if you did have color, you could also have hue-based contrast, like the difference between red and blue, as opposed to having two colors that are very similar to each other, like blue and purple, right? Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That is... That just blew my mind, kind of. That was awesome. <laughs> well, it's, you just have to think about it. Like black and white photography, it's harder to pull off sometimes because mm-hmm. now you can't use color. Like, well, let's talk African wildlife. Let's say I'm photographing a giraffe, just a single giraffe in front of a tree or a forest of trees. Well, from a shape standpoint, they kind of look similar, right? They're tall and skinny. Um, yeah. From a color standpoint, kind of similar they're in the warm tone yellow brown cinnamon kind of world maybe yellow and 
in black and white, when you convert your images, sometimes that's actually harder to pull apart. The, those shapes look too similar, but maybe that's okay. So it's you have to really, really, really pay attention to shapes when you're composing in black and white. So when I take my images, I know ahead of time that that's a black and white image. I know it. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm looking for separation of shapes. And if you think of shapes as being circles, ovals, squares, rectangles, triangles, inverted triangles, like a tree, that's an upside down triangle. Uh, you've got straight lines, horizons. You've got squiggly lines, like a diagonal line. Um, you just have all these different shapes to play with. And it's up to you to assemble them in a way that makes sense. And we use that by changing where we're standing or in a Land Rover, we just move the car. And we use a, a different focal length, a different lens. And, you know, if you think about photography, it's really the opposite of being a painter because a painter has a canvas. And on that canvas, they can put any object wherever they want. So it's an additive process. But photography, we've got all this stuff out of nature, or maybe it's not nature, but we have a lot of objects in a room or a space or an outdoor place, and we use a different focal length to eliminate. It's a subtractive process. We zoom yeah. in using a focal length to zoom in and eliminate things that are distracting. Right. Right. So, totally. yeah. And it's hard to do because nature is inherently very messy. There's just there's stuff everywhere, lines going yeah. everywhere. It's really, it's chaotic. It's chaotic. And so, um, you have to think about photography as a subtractive process, not a, not anything else. It's just you're trying to eliminate the things that shouldn't be in the scene that don't make sense. And then now, you know, like, what is your scene? What are you going to capture? And you think about shapes and you're thinking about the kind of uh, art history term of you have dominant and subdominant uh, players or actors or actresses on a stage. And their distance between them, how they're staring at or looking at each other or how they're positioned, all these nonverbal cues tell you a lot about what's going on. Right? Yeah, that's – yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's definitely something – that I uh, experienced when doing <clears throat> underwater photography, like we're shooting sharks and we're shooting people setting up stuff underwater divers. And, um, it's kind of chaotic, not so much because we have trees down there, but there's a lot of different stuff that you have to deal with. And it is definitely a subtracting process of trying to not show everything, get rid of some stuff. Yeah. It, it's really, it, it, it forces discipline. That's for sure. It forces yeah. a lot of discipline. Um, wildlife photography is oh, it's hard. It's hard to tell the story of subjects or a single subject without like any dialogue. Nobody knows what's going on, and you have to kind of infer certain things in photographs. You have we have to assume as a visual storyteller, we have to assume that there's no words or dialogue to go with your photograph. In other words, if you took your photograph and you made a big print of it, stuck it on the wall in a public place, you're not going to be standing next to it telling everybody what it is, right? <laughs> right? They don't know the whole backstory. They don't know anything. All they do is they walk up and look at it and think, I can understand what's going on. There's tension in the image, beautiful, whatever, whatever they can take from it. But that's from looking at it. That's it. 
That's it. Yeah. And so you have to assume that. I mean, I'm not going to ha- be able to explain every photograph I've ever taken, right? I can't do that. There's no way. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes so, you just get a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so a long time ago, a, a National Geographic photographer told me, he said, well, Andy, you're going to have to figure out whether you're the visual storyteller that has to tell a story with one photograph or multiple photographs. Like your visual style will dicta- dictate this. You know, are you looking for the one photograph that hangs on the wall above the fireplace that people walk in and go, ooh, right? Or are you the guy that takes photographs in a series? Maybe it's designed for a magazine article or a book project where it just takes you so much, so many images to get that out that one image right. could never do it. And I know my answer. I mean, I'm the, I'm the single image guy. I'm not looking for like a story of 10 to 130 photographs. It's not me. And so I knew that from day one that I was the guy picking up the camera, looking for maybe not the trophy photograph, but I would say something that's thoughtful, that is um, uh, thought-provoking, that, um, well, let's, I have, have, well, I can take this this photographic discussion in another direction. Um, I use adjectives to describe photographs. And that's what's always going through the back of my mind is like, what am I trying to say? I don't typically photograph um, animals tearing each other apart, anything that's negative or aggressive. So, but I have, I have a list of adjectives that I'm always trying to find in nature so that I can have consistency in my portfolio. So when I look back after, you know, end of days, when I'm about to die, I look at all my photographs and think, well, they're all, they're all consistent. They all kind of follow a path. So I'm looking for images that are timeless, remote, hopeful, uplifting, uh, heroic photographs. I love that kind of like imagine a lion on top of a rock or a hill with li- with with wind in its face overlooking the vast savanna plains. You know, that's a very heroic yeah, photograph, right? Powerful. So that, yeah, and that's what I'm looking for. And it's just a slice of of nature. It's it's not necessarily truthful. <laughs> you know, I'm selling you the idea that it's truthful and that's good right. Enough, right. I'm selling, I'm selling viewers that you go on safari. It's positive all the time. Animals are in harmony all the time. They're not, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, we have, we have predators of course, but right. I'm not, I'm not after that. I just want those kind of, uh, beautiful, uplifting, positive, heroic, looking photographs, but also no signs that humans have been there. So I'm not going to, I don't like to photograph roads. I don't like to photograph, um, anything manicured. Um, if there's a power line in nature, it's not going to show up in my photograph, you know? Right. Just, yeah. So I kind of took it off of an angle here, but, but, <laughs> it, but it's all about storytelling, right? At the end yeah. of the day, photography is about storytelling and whether we're choosing color, black and white, um, you know, it's just, I think it's just a, it's a style choice. Um, and you're colorblind, but guess what? So am I. So, oh, really? 
Yeah, it's but it's not that prevalent when I'm processing photographs. It happens when the light mm. starts to fade. I start to have problems. So it's not really a problem, yeah. you know, air quotes. Uh, it's not really a problem. I just work around it. Yeah. Yeah, I have issues if I'm editing something that's very uh, – it's, it's, I have red and green, mm-hmm. um, mild color blindness, and I have issues when I'm editing, like, landscapes that have a lot of green and um, red in them in the mixture, and sometimes I can – the temperature gauge is where I kind of mess up. I can make something a little too warm to where it pushes the green. Um, so I have to have people, like, be like, hey <laughs> – that's green. That's not, uh, yeah. it's no, no longer warm. <laughs> you know, some people have, uh, given me some advice on how to process things like that. Basically say, Andy, if you're going to mess around with color tools, mess around with your luminance tools first. So your black mm. to white, your shadow, get that, um, contrast kind of nailed down your luminance based contrast before you deal with color based tools and like saturation and artificially make it a little bit brighter at the beginning. So you're working with something that's bright and easier to discern what those color changes are before you bring the brightness down and mess with color. Because often we're not colorblind, but we're colorblind when things start getting darker and darker and darker. It's really hard. So we need more information and information comes in the form of more light. Oh, that's it. I'm definitely going to apply that. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's a trick. It's not, it doesn't work for everybody, but uh, similar to you, you know, I could be driving down and someone driving down a path and someone says, Oh, look at that beautiful red flower. And I'm rolling my eyes. Like, I don't, I don't (laughs) even see what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Science classes for me in high school were always a a mess trying to figure out the pH scale and all that. It yeah. Was, I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Oh, um, what about what about uh, streetlights? So those yeah. are fine, except there's like a weird time when if the sun is lighting them up in a certain way, then all of them look lit up, and then it's kind of iffy. I mean, yeah. I, I haven't had any issues yet, knock on wood, but yeah. that's the only time that it's a little sketchy. Yeah. Do you uh, ever have issues with them? No, because we're taught we know the order of the lights right. <laughs> we know we know we know where the order is right whether they're up and down or sideways we know yeah red is either on the left or at the top so right yeah um so i like what you said about the adjectives and you're searching for adjectives and that yeah. leads me to are there certain photograph a picture goals that you have that you're trying to capture as well like, no do you have certain images you've made in your head or no, not at all. I think if oh, okay. I were to do that, it would be uh, an exercise in frustration because because uh, life just don't, doesn't work that way. Um, but I am... Especially with wildlife. Oh, God, in nature. Yeah, so I, I will photograph anything in good light. I don't really care where it is, what it is. I will find something and and if, you know... If I'm kind of doing doing my job right, where I've got those adjectives in my head, I can make anything work. Right. Do you guys usually just go to, during golden hour for these safaris? No, no. We're often uh, on safari from 15 minutes before sunrise until maybe for the next four to eight hours. Oh, okay. And then we come back for lunch. 
and then we're relaxing for a few hours and go back out and then golden hour is probably an hour to two hours from that when we leave wow. camp yeah so no because we're often looking for subjects that we can photograph later in better light so let's say we find a pride oh, of lions in bad light that's fine we know where they are we can come back or we can just sit on them until the light gets better how long do they usually stay in place out there Depend, they, depends like on the subject. Really depends on the subject. Okay. But um, when you're looking for predators, um, typically they're not moving very far. Because they just don't need to? Well, middle of the day. Um, uh, so we, if, if you think about it, we've got three big cats in Africa. We've got uh, lions, leopards, and cheetah. And lions and leopards are nocturnal hunters. And okay. cheetahs are diurnal hunters, which means they hunt during the day. And so, but cheetahs, lions, and leopards, they're always going to be found typically in shade. So they're not going to move around too much during the heat of the day. They're fairly sedentary. They're not moving around too much. Cheetahs will probably be in the shade, but out in the middle of a field underneath a tree, just surveying and looking around. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Do you have a favorite photograph that you've captured i mean i know it's hard you've taken probably thousands and thousands but <laughs> three hundred thousand now that oh i have left God. yeah that's a lot those are the ones i haven't thrown away um yeah do i have a favorite photograph no but i will tell you this that i don't like it when if i were to have a good photograph that i'm like proud to show mm-hmm. if there wasn't a good moment that went along with it i want the two i really i'm driven around rich safari big memories rich safari moments and then yeah. oh yeah i have the photograph that went along with that memory because i mean it's you know as a, as a photographer sometimes we get emotionally attached to our photographs and we think the better photograph we had is maybe as a result of a lot of extra work or extra planning or we got up earlier that day or man that hike was awesome you know it was really hard but nobody cares. Nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> right? Nobody ca- yeah. cares how much more work it took to took photog- take a photograph. They're like, wow, that's just a nice photograph. That's a thoughtful, uh, impactful photograph. They don't mm-hmm. care. So I, try to, I, tr- I do try to separate the emotions from photographs. Where if, if I think photographs um, need to be shown and you show them to somebody, I, I try to keep my mouth shut. You know, I don't yeah. want them to know that that happened 30 seconds outside of camp and it took me no effort to take. They don't care. Right. I care. Right. But yeah. I need to just learn to keep my mouth shut. You know, photographers, we are our own worst critics. I can't tell you how many times I'll watch somebody take a photograph that they're really proud of and they'll show it to somebody. Let's say it's a print. They've made a print. And then they'll start talking about all of the deficiencies in the photograph. Oh, yeah, I just kind of over-sharpened it. I need to clone this little piece out. Like, dude, be quiet. Just let it speak for itself. You have to just separate yourself when you're, when you're showing your work. You know, we're so critical of ourselves. We're so incredibly critical. And that's, that, that is unfortunately like the, the creative path is that we're never happy. Creative people yeah. are depressed when they're not creating. That, there's a known, uh, that's a known thing. 
But we're also, we just, imagine taking a photograph that you were happy with 10 years ago. Are you still happy, as happy with it 10 years later? Probably not, because you've learned new tricks of storytelling, of, of, of you know, getting, maybe, maybe, maybe your technical prowess is just like, you're now top of the game. 10 years ago, you knew nothing. But you yeah. thought you knew something 10 years ago, right? So it's just the creative process. We're never happy. Ever. Well, I even, I, I definitely experienced that. I even look at pictures from two or three years ago and I'm like, man, if only I knew this, I could have made that a killer shot. <laughs> yeah, but do you ever, do you ever look at a photograph from a couple years ago and say, man, I really wish I would have had this camera? Not often. I would say not often. You might say, think, man, I wish I had more megapixels so I could crop a little more out and make a big print. Or I wish the, the I wish, that photograph had, um, you know, less noise, but yeah, but you know, you know, people don't notice that stuff. They really don't. I, I show photographs from two thousand and two, two thousand three, two thousand and four, where I had like five, six megapixel cameras with really, really, really bad noise. People don't notice. They don't really care. Yeah, they when I first care. started out, I was using a, a little Sony crop sensor yeah. camera, and it was awesome. Yeah, it doesn't matter, does it? It really doesn't. Yeah. I think it's easy for us to, you know, put off a trip because we don't have that camera that's on order and it hasn't been delivered yet. Does it really mm. matter? I mean, really? No. Yeah. It really speaking does. Of camera, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of cameras, though, what is the one that you currently... Do you still shoot with Canon? Well, so I've moved back, back and forth between Canon and Nikon four times. Oh, mainly, wow. mainly, well, four times, twice. I went. I started off Nikon film, Canon digital, Nikon digital, back to Canon. So I've I've made the switch twice. Right. Um, but I, I I'm very agnostic. So I own three kind of camera systems. So I have Canon mirrorless, uh, an R five is my my go to camera. Um, then I do have, and I'm sponsored by Phase One. Um, so I do have a phase one. They're camera. awesome. Yeah, they are. But man, you, you need to, you need to like pony up for, for some heavy gear, <laughs> some really yeah. heavy gear. It's more appropriate yeah. <laughs> for landscape work than wildlife. So I don't use it that often. And then okay. I do use a Leica Q2 for cultural oh, cool. slash just general travel work. And that's my favorite camera. Best camera I've ever owned. They're awesome. Yeah, but it's a 28 millimeter fixed lens. It's not for every situation. It's not for everybody. But the files are just drop dead gorgeous. Just I'm drop, sure. Yeah, drop dead gorgeous. Yeah. Um, but I'm primarily a Canon guy. I got rid of all of my big lenses a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic. I actually sold everything. Really? I don't know. I was about I was about to buy a Sony system until. You know, I kind of realized, man, I'm I'm not going to use it for a while if this pandemic lasts. And so I just held off and I held off and I held off. And then last November, I bought into Canon's mirrorless and I'm super happy. But I only own three lenses and one camera. Yeah. Which lenses? <laughs> a 100 to 500 for wildlife, a nice. uh, 24 to 70 for just general yep. travel work. Great, great lens. Yeah, and then I've got an 85 Prime. That's it. 
Yeah, I need I need to I need to buy a seventy to two hundred, but I'm not that I'm not really that driven right now. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. I uh, I've been a Sony shooter the whole time, and uh, those can't that the Canon mirrorless system that they came out with is awesome though. Oh, they're they're very functional. And the reason why yeah. I didn't end up going that direction had more to do with just ergonomics and my comfort level of what I knew. Yeah, uh, the ergonomics on a Canon is much better. Yeah, I mean, the, the sometimes I shoot with gloves on, and Sony's were a little difficult for that because mm-hmm. the buttons are so small. Uh, but really, and then we're nitpicking here. These are all great yeah. tools. They're, 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 Every they're, camera nowadays is great. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you know, your your worst enemy is between your ears. You know, it's yeah. not it's not the gear. It's not the gear. Nobody cares. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, have you, so since you have always, you've done wildlife photography, you've had beautiful work. Have you noticed that there's been like a rise in conservation through the years, especially as you've been a safari guide as well because of photography rising, especially wildlife photography like that? I'll just say, I don't know that answer, but I'll say that my own, uh, my own interest in conservation has grown every year. Yeah. Um, I'd say when I started my safari business and did doing wildlife photography, I don't think I knew enough information to un- understand the challenges that that wildlife face, uh, like specifically rhinos, elephants, giraffe, lions. And the more I've been in this business, the more my eyes are open to the challenges and I participate in it. So I use my images for conservation primarily. I don't earn a lot of money from my images. So what I often do is I'll say oh, to a friend, um, oh, you want to buy a print? That's great. Um, I will make the print and you make the donation to this organization for that print. Don't pay me. That's very cool. Yeah, that's what I do. and That's awesome. I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to do prints. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really, um, yeah. So I also started a website called Focus on a Cause, and I sell prints from there, as long, uh, well, uh, along with two other photographers, and we donate those funds to different profits. That's awesome. Very cool. Profits, not for profits. What am I saying? Not for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's definitely been. I never knew that the conservation photography work could be the route I went into when I first started doing it. Um, but as I've done more work with Beneath the Waves, and that's what it is, is conservation. Now I've kind of come into that. And uh, it's very rewarding to know that the pictures I'm producing are for a greater cause. Yeah, you know, from my own business standpoint, I don't, I don't budget that I'm going to make a single print sale in a year. I don't expect anything. And yeah, I do make print sales and I have some interior designers that uh, buy really large prints and put them in homes and businesses. And that's great. I think that's wonderful. But anything that I'm selling direct, like off the website, ends up going to a a not-for-profit. Gotcha. Yeah. I always wonder when I see some of my favorite wildlife photographers how much of their 
income does come from print sales because I think that's such a hard thing to Ooh, it's really tough. master. It's tough. You know, for every hour that I could spend marketing my photographs for print sales, I'm probably earning Oh, God, it's hard to even say. It's more efficient for me to market myself planning safaris. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, much yeah. <laughs> yeah, more. But there's something about making a print that is so rewarding. It's like that last step. You know, we go, we buy our camera gear, we get it ready, we go on a trip, we get out in the field, we take photographs, we come home, we're downloading the photographs, we're processing the photographs, only to have them live on your phone. I mean, that's just yeah. that's just a horrible last step. Yeah, and you can share them on Facebook or Instagram, and that's you know <laughs> it's rewarding somewhat. But having a physical print like on the wall, um, I know that's your a beautiful shop. I know your listeners can't see this, but yeah, I've got a a fifty by one hundred inch print of elephants behind me on the wall, taken from Amboseli National Park, Kenya, with Mount Kilimanjaro in the background. Shot with a phase one camera. And, you know, it just brings me joy having this on my wall. And I live with it every single day. It's amazing. It's a great yeah. shot. But it's because it was printed. <laughs> it's, not sitting, yeah. <laughs> it's not sitting on my computer as a backdrop or on my phone as, as my yeah. home screen photo, right? They're very... Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and this was printed on metal. Very cool. Those yeah. always look, those look great. Yeah, but it's it, normally you say metal. People are like, "Ooh, I don't know. That doesn't sound. like." It's actually wonderful, but it's framed. It's, it's, yeah, so it presents, I, well, presents well. I've been fortunate. I've been in some like ocean magazines and local magazines here and stuff. And there's probably nothing more satisfying than seeing your work printed and published like that. Even like making no money from it, like it's just the coolest thing in the world to see. Yeah, you know, I think. You know, as a as a creative person, you need to be creating and then showing your work. And we're often driven by not recognition from like fame, but maybe just some sort of recognition that you you've arrived, you're there, you're not invisible, right? And if you think about having your having a, a photograph of yours like in print, on display, on a wall is the ultimate because someone has chosen to take their space and dedicate it to your output. Like yeah. in my in, in my world, if I'm selling a print into someone's home, you make the assumption that they're taking something else down off the wall that, that was already there. Well, was that like something that they bought while on a on a vacation? Um is it a family photograph? You know, is it what is it that they cherish or that they took off to put your image on that wall? Like that's the ultimate, you know, pat on the back in a way that someone would want your output, your creative output in their home or their environment, their work environment. It's so cool. Yeah, that's a that's a great way of looking at it. Um, it's and, hum- uh, yeah, I know it's, you're- it's humbling. It's humbling. Yeah, very. And I know you're a very busy, busy guy. I just have one more question for you, and uh, I'll let you uh, get back to work. Um, if you could give advice to an aspiring wildlife photographer, what what is one of the biggest things that you would tell them? Learn learn the language of business, like like understand how to market, how to how to position your product or service, how much to charge for it. 
understand what your competitors are doing. Just understand the language of business because that's ultimately what you are. You're a business person, but you're doing it with a camera, but you still have to understand business. So um, you really should understand, you know, the, the, the mechanics of business, um, numbers. I'm a numbers person. I'm an accountant by trade, but just, just be your own best business person because that's really what you are. You're in business to stay alive in business. You're not in business to make photographs and give them away. Right. Yeah. And you have to learn, you have to earn a living somehow. So find out what is it that you have that other people want and are willing to pay you for it. And if they're not willing to pay you for it, that kind of tells you something. Maybe you're not as good in that field as you are in some other field. You know, for example, maybe maybe you're taking photographs of real estate and you should be taking photographs of like doing portrait work. You know, you, your talents might line up better in an area where people are willing to compensate you for it. And, you know, at a greater rate. So just kind of learn the language of business, um, all aspects, marketing, sales, product positioning, just how, how all that stuff works. That is the, that's the number one thing that I think every yeah. creative person needs to know. Yeah, I like that a lot. That um, I think that's definitely important. It's definitely something that I have struggled with, especially the rate system. That part always is tricky to me. Yeah, um, knowing what to charge is like that's a pricing exercise, and pricing involves two things: an understanding of the science of pricing. You know, what are my what are my competitors charging? Uh, just understanding the, the metrics of that. But there's also an art side of it, which is sometimes you just lick your finger and stick it up in the air and you you don't know, but you have to find out. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's easier the more data you have. You know, we're taught in business school that, that the more data points you have, the more information you have. And the more information you have, the better it is and the better the information is, the better decisions you make off of that. So it all starts with data. You just need to accumulate data by looking around, understanding what other people are doing. That's usually, you know, the best. Asking customers or potential customers, what would you pay for something? You know, it's all it's all discipline of running a business. It just so happens that you're doing it with photography. Yeah, it's it's a it's a cool it's a cool job and it's definitely one that i hope to further myself in and you will you know people it, like you i think if if you just you outperform every all well everybody else in a certain field you're the you're the last one standing you know and it's not always the quality of your photographs i would say it's often not the quality of the photographs it's usually mm-hmm. something else you know being a better marketer, being better at building and maintaining relationships with people. Yeah. Yeah. A lot to think about. It's daunting. It's daunting. Yeah. It's a lot of work. It's, it's great though. And that, that, that question, the advice was perfect. Cause that, I need to hear that stuff too. Yeah. Unfortunately works a four letter word, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so, so much for coming on here. This is, 
been a huge treat for me and I've admired your work for years and it's just, it was an honor to get to talk with you for a little bit. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. Thank you. Of course.